Chapter 26 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 26 Franklin Conducts His Trial. While this scene had been going on in the study, Gladys had entered the library, had acted surprised at seeing Jerry, and had been halted by him, just as Mr. Franklin, in his brief interview with her a few minutes earlier, had told her she would be. She knew she was living through a dangerous hour. Things might go wrong, and something strike at her. And so, since it was her instinct and habit to have Esther near her, when there was possibility of danger, she had now brought Esther along. A moment after their entrance, Mitchell had come in. He had no guess at exactly what was going on. But the sudden appearance at Rolling Meadows of Cordelia, Jerry Plimpton, Jackie Thorndyke, and Mr. Franklin, with Mrs. Marlowe, made him suspect that something of importance was due to happen. And he felt that anything important that happened in this household was very definitely his concern. The four of them had risen when Cordelia had burst from the study, Franklin just behind her. Her surprise at the sight of the four was slight and was gone in a moment. A flame with angry purpose, tense, Drawn to her full height, she was a superb commanding figure. At that moment she felt herself a super Cordelia Marlowe. Singing electrically through her was the great strength, the great confidence, which had never failed to sweep her in triumph through any emergency. And behind her own great strength, making it invincible, she felt the reassuring strength of Jerry Plimpton. Jerry, she cried, after her brief pause, I want to tell you, tell all of you people, that this man here has just been demanding that I break our engagement and marry him, and he has tried to enforce that demand by threatening me with exposure if I refused, has tried to blackmail me into marriage. Jerry crossed the room in three strides, his face black, his hands clenched. Damn you, Franklin. I'm going. Don't strike me just yet, Franklin spoke up quickly in his composed tone. Wait till you've heard all Miss Marlowe's story, until I've made a few remarks. I'll promise not to interrupt her, on the understanding that I am likewise to be allowed to tell my story to the end. Then, Mr. Plimpton, having heard all, if you still wish to strike me, I give you leave to strike as often and as hard as you like. Go on, Cordelia, said Jerry. I'll tell you everything about this man, yes, and I'll tell all the world when— One moment, Miss Marlowe, please, Franklin broke in. I believe I noticed some reporters in another room, the men who followed you to get the news of your marriage. If you wish to tell all the world, I know of no better way than to ask those reporters in. Yes, ask them in, cried Cordelia. Miss Norworth, said Franklin, as this is your house, you are the proper person to ask the reporters to come here. Gladys, remembering her instructions to obey Franklin's every order and to follow his every lead, promptly went out. No one in the room spoke until she returned a minute later, followed by a dozen reporters. They ranged themselves along the wall and became a silent audience to the drama that was being played by the six characters in the room. Hounds, Jerry in his irritation had called them, but they were all eager, alert men, and all were alive with excitement over the possibility of some new twist to the much-written Marlowe Plimpton romance. For the benefit of these messengers to all the world, Cordelia repeated the beginning of her story, though she directed her words at Jerry. Her voice was vibrant with insulted pride, crushing contempt, and assured triumph. This man here, on my wedding day, 
has just demanded that I break my engagement and marry him. He has tried to blackmail me into marriage by threatening to make certain exposures concerning me. I shall make those exposures myself, and in making them I shall show him to be a crooked lawyer, a swindler, and a professional blackmailer. I became acquainted with him about the first of last June. I needed money. There was no news in that admission, for everyone knows my family has never had much money. I inserted an advertisement. This man answered it, and that is how we met. He made me believe that, unknown to a certain woman, he was confidentially retained by other people to protect that woman. He said there was some secret in that woman's life which was being used against her, in which he did not know, and he said he could not properly protect her unless he knew this secret, unless he knew what he was protecting her against. The woman is rich and of social prominence, I know her. This man suggested that, through my knowing this woman, I might be able to discover this secret, and thereby be of great assistance to him and to the woman. He proposed that I undertake this matter, and he offered to pay me well for this service. All that he said sounded very plausible to me at the time, and as I greatly needed money, I accepted. I discovered the secret. What that secret is has no bearing on what I am now telling. Besides, that secret is with me still a confidential matter. I told the secret to this man, as I had obligated myself to do. He paid me as he had promised. I had acted in good faith all the time and believed I had performed an honorable service and had legitimately earned the money. Not until later did I learn that when he first spoke to me this man was not legally engaged by anyone to protect this woman, and not until much later did I learn this man's true character and what he had been doing. He had been using the secret I obtained to levy blackmail upon the woman I have mentioned. The money he paid me was paid me for being a tool, an innocent tool, remember, in his blackmailing scheme. I now know this was unclean money, and I have promised this man to repay him every cent. These, then, are the things this man threatened to expose if I did not marry him. That I had taken his money, that I was his dupe in a blackmailing scheme. There, that is all. She turned on Franklin and gave him, as from a great height, a look of withering disdain. So you thought you could frighten me with your threats to tell such a story, she said contemptuously. Your threats have had just one effect, and an effect you had not counted on. They have forced me to tell the world what a scoundrel you are, and when the courts are through with you, you'll be out of the blackmailing business forever. Jerry glowered at Franklin, his fists clenched again, and he stepped toward the lawyer. Here's where you get it, he cried. One moment, Franklin said quickly. Remember, I let Miss Marlowe have her full say on the understanding that I was to be allowed a few remarks. Go ahead, thundered Jerry, but you'd better make it snappy. Thank you. Using your own word, I shall make it as snappy as I can. Franklin paused for a moment, seemingly to arrange his thoughts. In reality, it was a courtroom trick of his. Such a pause let the effect of the opposing counsel's words upon the jury wear off a little, helped center attention and suspense upon himself. However, much of wild passion might be in his nature. Cool lawyer brain ruled the whole of him at the present moment. It was a trial, and he recognized it as such a trial with all the world sitting upon the jury, and he further recognized that for the time being he was the person on trial. Never before had he prepared for any case as he had prepared for this, for in no other trial of his life had he personally had so much at stake. Every lawyer's wit in him was alert, yet he tried his best not to look or seem the lawyer. His manner was hesitant, uncertain, apologetic at the start. I must ask you all, and you especially, Mr. Plimpton, to exercise restraint during my first statements. Being Miss Marlowe's friends, you naturally all believe her story. 
If I have any defense, I must naturally contradict some parts of that story. And naturally, some of my contradictions may give you serious offense, but please bear with me until I am through. The first charge against me which I shall take up is her account of what passed between us a few moments ago in the study. She claims that I urged her to break the engagement and tried to coerce her into marrying me. Half of that statement is true, half untrue. She referred unpleasantly to my character. For some time I have been aware of certain things about her character which are generally unknown. Just what they are, and just what I learned of them, I shall state later on. I will here merely say that they are derogatory, and unfit her to be Mrs. Plimpton. For motives which will later be clear, Mr. Plimpton, I have on several occasions urged Miss Marlowe to end her engagement of her own accord. She has refused, and has made threats against me for my interference. One of these threats she has carried out in this accusation she has just made against me. I have had her watched, and I learned of your plan to be married today and I arranged with Miss Norworth to get the two of you here. My purpose in using this device was to gain a chance to make one last appeal to Miss Marlowe to break the engagement and so prevent an unfortunate marriage. That is absolutely all that passed between us in the study. I made this last appeal to save you, Mr. Plimpton, and I once more failed. What she has added to this account, such as my trying to blackmail her into marrying me and the like, are all fabrications intended to discredit me exactly as she had threatened if I should attempt to stop her by some means other than appeal and argument. There you have the truth of what happened in the study, and the whole truth. Cordelia had barely been able to contain herself during this long opening statement, with its few truths and many falsehoods. She was amazed, Ruthie, at the man's colossal, incredible impudence. That's a lie, she now burst out hotly. Everything he's added to my statement is all a lie. I cannot prove that part of my story, I admit, Franklin continued. Perhaps, for the sake of establishing my credibility, it would be wise to turn at once to some points which I can prove. Miss Marlowe has several times referred to a certain woman with a secret, and whom she says I claimed to be trying to protect. She refrained from giving this woman's name, and has let us infer that her reticence was due to a desire to shield the woman. I thank her, and so does the lady, I am sure. But there is no necessity for the reticence. Miss Norworth, I believe you are the woman referred to? Gladys went white. She had no idea to what this question might lead, but there was his order to back up his every move. I am, she said. Miss Marlowe has said that, at the time I first spoke to her, I was not engaged directly or indirectly to represent Miss Norworth. I must say, parenthetically, that I have with me a number of documents which I shall show in their proper order. They are not with me by accident. Miss Marlowe has been threatening to do just what she has done this morning and I have been carrying these documents for self-protection in case just such an emergency as this should develop. He drew a black leather wallet from the inner pocket of his waistcoat, and from it took a folded paper which he handed to Gladys. Miss Norworth, will you please identify this paper and tell us its contents? It's a letter I wrote to you. It asks you to take legal charge of all my affairs. When was it written? It is dated May 15th of this year. What else was done in the matter? I saw you, and this arrangement I asked for was made. A contract was drawn up and signed. I think that was two days later. Miss Marlowe says that my first talk with her, during which I made my alleged proposal to her to gain your secret, was early in June. She says I lied when I claimed to be protecting you as a lawyer. Was I, or was I not, your regularly retained lawyer at that time? You were. That's not so, breathed Cordelia. It is so, Miss Marlowe. Only at that time you did not know it, Franklin responded. A little later on you will learn the reason why you were not permitted to know. 
Will you kindly give me back the letter, Miss Norworth? Thank you. I may say to all of you that the contract Miss Norworth spoke of is in my office safe and will be produced at any time when requested. But Miss Norworth's word and this letter, which anyone may examine who so wishes, prove conclusively that since about the middle of May I have been Miss Norworth's legal representative and in her legal confidence. And now I believe I have shown three things. First, that some of my unprovable statements may possibly be true. Second, that Miss Marlowe is capable of misstatements. And third, that I have been in the midst of this affair and had business there from the very beginning. Franklin passed a moment to let these points sink into his jury, and he glanced them over to see what effect he had thus far made. Cordelia, splendidly indignant, contemptuous and certain, also gazed around the room to get the effect produced by the outrageous lies this man was telling. Jerry's gaze was fixed hard and glowering on Franklin, otherwise his grim face told nothing of his impressions. Esther's face was just a face of wonderment. Mitchell's was pale, set, almost expressionless, but Cordelia felt sure that Mitchell, at least, knew that Franklin was lying. Gladys's green eyes were glittering with vengeful joy at Franklin's attack upon Cordelia, and with wild suspense as to what he might do next. But alloying that pleasure was a fear that something might possibly happen to her. As for the reporters, they were skeptical but excited. Such a story about the famous Cordelia Marlowe, Cordelia the Magnificent, that very hour on her way to the altar with the rich Jerry Plimpton. That would be a story indeed, if there was only a peg of unassailable and unlibelous fact on which to hang it. But so far there had been no such fact. Franklin continued. I shall leave the charge of blackmail alleged by Miss Marlowe until a little later. To repeat... I have long feared this threat of Miss Marlowe, and since I was going to deliver to her my ultimatum this morning, I came here today especially prepared against her carrying out this threat. To make my later points clear, I shall now introduce some evidence that may at the present seem unimportant. Miss Norworth, will you kindly ask Mrs. Marlowe and Mrs. Thorndyke to join us for a few moments? Again, Gladys promptly obeyed. Jackie came in and looked about her in bewilderment. Mrs. Marlowe came in with an expectant smile. She had an idea that she was to be a witness to her daughter's marriage, after all. Seeing the crowd and the tense attitude of everyone, her smile vanished, and she blinked about the room in her surprise. "'Just a few questions, and both of you ladies may then be excused,' said Franklin. First, you, Mrs. Marlowe. About the first of last June, your entire family fortune was swept away, was it not?' "'Yes, but with Cordelia's help, you very quickly got it restored to us, Mr. Franklin, and I shall never stop being grateful to you.' You believed, at least, that I restored your fortune to you. Now the loss of your fortune would have meant social obliteration for you and your two daughters, would it not? Of course, one cannot maintain a social position such as the Marlows have always had without money. And you wanted to maintain that position, did you not? Not alone for your own sake, but for the sake of your two daughters? In fact, this was an almost overwhelming desire, was it not? Naturally, I wanted to remain where the Marlows have always been. Thank you, Mrs. Marlow. That is all. And now, Mrs. Thorndyke, did or did not Miss Marlowe confide to you about the 1st of June that their fortune had all been swept away? Jackie looked questioningly at Cordelia. Answer him, Jackie, Cordelia ordered contemptuously. She did, said Jackie, but a few days later she told me it had all been a mistake, or at any rate the fortune had been returned to them. Thank you, Mrs. Thorndyke, uh, that is quite all, and now both of you ladies may go. By the way, Mrs. Marlowe, I find I shall be detained here for some time. I suggest that you return to the city in my car. Just tell my driver your wishes. I have already told him that the car is at your disposal. Good morning, and thank you both again. Mrs. Marlowe hesitated, her face anxious. Do you need me here, Cordelia? No. 
You'd better go, Cordelia answered proudly. Jerry and I will be leaving here in just a few minutes. Mrs. Marlowe and Jackie passed out of the library. There was no need for you to have brought them here as witnesses, Cordelia said to Franklin with her manner of contemptuous pride. I would have admitted the loss of our fortune. In fact, I have already voluntarily said as much. It is just as well that I had this bit of corroborative evidence, Franklin responded. But the loss of the fortune is not the only point in this evidence. The most important point is that two persons, the only ones among your relatives and friends who knew of this loss, were very quickly made to believe by you that the fortune had never been lost, just as all your friends believe to this day. He turned to the others. I wish you all to bear this point in mind, for its great importance will soon be apparent, that Miss Marlowe admits that the fortune was actually lost, and that all this time she has made the world believe that she was living on the family fortune. I made people believe that because you ordered me to make them believe it, Cordelia retorted angrily. Naturally, your defense would be to blame me, he returned. Again, he addressed himself to the others. Miss Marlowe has referred to an advertisement which led to our acquaintance. I believe that advertisement will prove an interesting exhibit. Again, he drew out the black wallet and again took from it a folded paper. Here is her advertisement posted on a sheet of paper. I can recall Mrs. Thorndike to prove its authenticity. There's no use going any further trying to prove that advertisement is mine, Cordelia interrupted. I admit it. Then if you admit it, the less harm to you in my showing it. The points I am making, ladies and gentlemen, may seem each small in itself, just as one brick is small, but a great many bricks will build a house. You shall presently see just what is built by my many little points. This advertisement has value in helping to reveal the true character of Miss Marlowe, and in helping to reveal her secret methods. It reads as follows. American girl, 23, strong, considered good-looking, best social standing, expert at swimming, riding, tennis, dancing, and can drive a racing car, has other accomplishments, but no useful training, desires position with adequate remuneration. What have you to offer her? I give this advertisement to you newspapermen to copy in case you later decide to use it, and Franklin so did. You newspapermen recognize that type of advertisement. Formerly, they appeared in certain newspapers under the unsavory heading of personals, Nowadays, all decent newspapers, except when the clerk at the want ad counter becomes careless, vigorously exclude all such matter. As you newspaper men know, such an advertisement is usually a delicate suggestion that the lady, if satisfactory terms can be arranged, is quite willing to become the temporary wife of any agreeable man. You, you dare say that? gasped Cordelia. Jerry had seized Franklin by the shoulder. Damn you! Take that back, you damned slanderous, foul-minded scoundrel! Certainly, Mr. Plimpton, if you desire, said Franklin apologetically. But there's hardly any need for me to take it back, since I did not accuse Miss Marlowe of the intention which that advertisement might imply. But doubtless, I was not the only one who was struck by that unusual advertisement. Doubtless, Miss Marlowe had many replies. I should like to ask Miss Marlowe if the majority of the men who wrote to her did not take her advertisement as exactly the kind of an overture I've indicated. Cordelia recalled the thick bundle of responses. Indeed, all of them with the sole exception of Mr. Franklin's, had taken the advertisement in exactly the suggestive manner he had described. She flushed at the memory of those insults. That has nothing to do with the present matter, she retorted. He had made his little point, had added one more brick. He had not expected his very plain innuendo to be accepted. He had merely been following, in his lawyer way, that proved device of using anything and everything that may create doubt or suspicion against a hostile witness. Contented, he went on. Personally, the worst I claim for that advertisement is that it shows a woman in desperate straits, ready for anything. 
Please remember the situation as her mother described it. They were suddenly penniless and faced utter social oblivion. Miss Marlowe here was the proudest of them all, the greatest social figure, and the prospect of social oblivion was naturally more terrible to her than to the others. As I have said, such a woman in such a situation is ready for anything. That unusual advertisement caught my eye. It seemed to me suspicious, of such a character indeed, that I felt it my duty as a citizen to investigate it. So I answered that advertisement, and the writer of it came to see me. This was in early June, as Miss Marlowe says. I recognized Miss Marlowe at once, and was naturally amazed that a young woman so well-known in society should be using a device that is more properly the method of a rather ordinary adventuress. I was all the more interested in meeting her, in such a strange situation, because she had been a school friend and was a social intimate of my new client, Miss Norworth, whom, as I have just proved to you, I was then legally representing. Naturally, I kept this legal connection with Miss Norworth a secret for the time being from Miss Marlowe. Pardon me if I once more interrupt my narrative for just a moment. There are a few other documents I wish to show you. Again, the black wallet was taken out, and this time several bits of paper were extracted from it. Miss Marlowe has admitted the family fortune was really gone. Here are eight canceled checks signed by me, totaling $20,000, five for $2,500, each made out to Mrs. Marlowe, and three for $2,500, each made out to Miss Marlowe. You will see that they have all been endorsed by Mrs. Marlowe and Miss Marlowe, and were therefore cashed by them. Oh, I admit the money was paid, and we got it, Cordelia said with imperious impatience. She was tired of all this wordy detail which was leading nowhere, and which was certainly not going to enable Franklin to escape his just deserts. But I've told you I thought the money was honestly earned, and I've told you that I would repay it. If you have anything important to say, please get to it. Again, you mistake the real point, Miss Marlowe. The importance here is not in your having received this money. The important point is that the money represented by these eight checks is all the money you and your family have received since the 1st of June. I admit that if it will get you forward any quicker, please come to something important. We'll come to something important, most important, in just a moment. He now spoke, for the first time, with swift, incisive vigor. What I have said thus far has been just preparation. We now come to the heart of the whole sordid business. Please remember, all of you, that Miss Marlowe has admitted that the money represented by these checks is all she or her family has had in the last several months. Without that money, she could not have kept her high place in the world. To return once more to my narrative, Miss Marlowe, after our first interview, tried to sound me out with suggestions that grew more and more dubious. I led her on to see just what was her game. At length, she made me a proposition. The family had lost its money, she told me, and she was in desperate straits. She had a chance to make a splendid marriage, but she needed money to put that marriage over. If I would help her, she would pay me a large sum after her marriage. She had a plan to secure money, but she could not swing that plan alone, and she asked my aid. The plan she proposed to me was to blackmail a certain lady. The person she named as the victim of her matrimonial scheme was yourself, Mr. Plimpton. The first victim of the blackmailing scheme was Miss Norworth. What, what infernal lies, gasped Cordelia, now furious. Of course you would say so, Miss Marlowe. Miss Norworth, you have personal knowledge of some of these statements. Have I lied in any statement that concerns you? You have told only the truth, Gladys said emphatically. And I know that she was all the time scheming to get Jerry Plimpton to marry her. Gladys, you, you, but Cordelia's words could not come out. Go on, Jerry commanded Franklin in a harsh voice. Miss Marlowe made it a condition, Franklin continued, that if I went into her plan with her, no one was to know of our arrangement. 
No one was to know of the lost family fortune, and everybody was to suppose that the money received from her plan was just the usual family income. If people knew the facts, she pointed out, her position would be lost and her whole plan would be worthless. I pretended to accede to all she said. Meanwhile, I consulted my client, Miss Norworth, one of Miss Marlowe's proposed victims. Miss Norworth ordered me to go right ahead with Miss Marlowe. She told me of various shady things which Miss Marlowe, because of her financial shortage, had done to cling on to her position. Miss Marlowe's continual shortage of money had long since made her a social parasite, scheming for invitations on which she could live. That shortage was now turning her into a desperate and dangerous social menace. Miss Norworth and I determined to lead her on in her plan to blackmail Miss Norworth, and then, when we had her thoroughly involved, expose her and thus rid society of her. In accordance with this prearranged plan, Miss Norworth agreed to submit, for a time, to being blackmailed by Miss Marlowe, making the payments through me as Miss Marlowe had suggested. Miss Norworth placed money in my hands for this purpose, though I did advance the first amounts paid over. And exactly as Miss Norworth and I planned, exactly was the thing carried out. I believe that is a correct summary of what we did, Miss Norworth. That's exactly what we talked over, and exactly what we did, Gladys cried quickly, exultantly. Not till the last minute or two had she perceived just where Franklin was driving. Now she saw Cordelia was being struck down, struck down, struck down, and she was glad. Cordelia Marlowe kept demanding more money, and more money, and more money, but it was worth all I spent, for at last we trapped her. As Franklin had piled swift lie upon swift lie, Cordelia's growing rage had been appalled into sheer inability to speak by the unbelievable audacity of it all. At the moment she could not conceive that anyone would credit such preposterous lies. She had not feared Franklin and did not now fear him, and she had no fear of the outcome of this preposterous scene, but Gladys had gone too far. At these last glib, vindictive falsehoods of Gladys, the rage in Cordelia found its tongue. "'Gladys Norworth!' she cried, crossing and facing Gladys in her fury. "'You can't tell such lies about me and still expect me to be loyal to you and shield you. You've been paying real blackmail and you knew it, and you've been paying blackmail to Mr. Franklin, and I'm going to tell exactly why you were paying blackmail.' "'Stop her, Mr. Franklin!' shrieked Gladys in sudden frenzy. "'Stop her! For God's sake, stop her!' But Franklin, for that moment, was interested in Gladys, only insofar as she might serve to clear himself. Besides, he knew of no way of stopping Cordelia. At last the world is going to know the exact secret you have been paying blackmail to have hushed up, Cordelia's voice rang on. And here it is, because Francois is your child, your illegitimate child. A sudden hush filled the library. In her great anger, outraged beyond all bearing by insult after insult, in her righteous certainty of emerging a victor from this affair, Cordelia wheeled swiftly upon Franklin like a scorching flame. "'That's what your witness is worth,' she cried in her mighty contempt. "'All her life has been just a lie, just as everything she has said against me has been a lie. Just lies. That's what your charges against me have been built on. Lies.' With that she turned, her back squarely upon Franklin, and an erect, quivering, splendid figure, she stood gazing down into the green eyes of the appalled Gladys. End of section 26